0: exclusive podcast from impact 89 fm
1: wdbm east lansing
2: welcome to impact exposure exposure, exposure is 88.9 the Impact's one hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the msu community and now tonight's exposure you are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, NATO planners say the Allies in Libya are stepping up attacks on palaces, headquarters, communication centers, and other prominent institutions supporting the Libyan government in a further attempt to weaken Muammar Gaddafi's grip on power and frustrate his forces in the field. Officials in Europe and in Washington say the, strikers, the strikes were meant to reduce the government's ability to harm civilians by eliminating, link by link, the command, communications, and supply chains. Were ...required for sustaining military operations, according to the New York Times. In national news, a third air traffic controller has been fired for sleeping on the job, even as some say naps should be allowed during working hours to enhance controller attentiveness, according to Reuters. The termination of the controller followed several highly publicized incidents that have included sleeping controllers, an unresponsive controller watching a movie in Ohio, and an aborted landing of Michelle Obama's plane at Andrews Air Force Base. The Boeing field controller in Seattle, fired this week, fell asleep twice in recent months, according to a Federal Aviation Administration statement. There have been several recent regulation changes, including new guidelines for off hours, limits on shift swapping, and increased staffing of FAA managers during late night and early morning hours. And in Michigan news, the National Weather Service has issued a tornado watch for Impact's listening audience until 10 p.m. tonight. A tornado watch means conditions are favorable for the development of tornadoes. And on Exposure Tonight, we'll be talking about the environment, including how MSU was awarded as one of the greenest research institutions in the country last week. But at first, Chris Bathgate, a leader in Michigan Folk, music scene. is performing at Max bar this Thursday. Up next is an interview. The impacted with him last fall.
3: To the rail I pray Cause in November I heard your name Quit my job and stole a gun That's why the liquor's gone that's why I'm burning All my letters are alive and there. In the city, in the city, in the city, I'm not dead at
0: all. It's WDBM East Lansing here, and I'm Matt, chatting with Chris Bathgate. And uh, so the first time I saw you, Chris, uh, it was a solo show, but you've done uh, a lot of different formulas with live shows. How would you explain the the differences and what that's like?
3: Um, Yeah, there's quite a few. So uh, let's start with a really big band. Sometimes I play with a really big band with uh, horns, trombone, trumpet, uh, pedal steel, violin, a couple electric guitars, bass, drums, and sometimes aux, percussion. Uh, That's been getting more rare as time's been going on it's a lot for small sound systems to handle and sometimes in the fullness there's a like muck that can't you you know there's some things that just can't cut through um but that band is sort of called the hail marys um and it, it sort of is derived out of me calling up everyone that i knew uh the day of a show and telling them all to show up Um, and I've played with a bunch of different people, uh, for years now in the Ann Arbor area, so the number of people that I can call that know my songs is, it's a pretty high number, so, um, that's a blessing. Uh, there's a smaller group rolling around now that you've probably, it's probably more recent, uh, maybe in the past six months, called the Young Bucks, Chris Bathgate and the Young Bucks, uh, and those are, that's four dudes, uh... Everybody playing a couple different instruments, floor toms, um, and yeah, I play solo a lot, and I loop my guitar and voice now. So there's sort of it's sort of me and me and me. Yeah,
0: and it seems like I I can't really hear your name without it being instantly associated with the Ann Arbor and Ipsy, and even Michigan music scene. Yeah. Um, what's that? What's that like? How do you feel about the the scene or? I feel pretty positively about the scene. It, the one thing
3: that I think that's different about Michigan music than uh, other areas is that, well, one I can compare it to is Philadelphia. We've got a lot of friends in Philadelphia, and there's a Philadelphia music scene. Um, and while there may be an uh, Ann Arbor music scene, or an Ipsy music scene, or Lansing music scene, uh, I hear a lot of people say Michigan music, or like, oh, I love Michigan music, or Michigan folk, which is also like strangely enough a genre and was before uh, that Sufjan record came out I think um, so yeah I think, it's, I think it's positive that the entire state seems unified or interested in the idea of unification um, and I think it's happening on a lot of in a lot of sort of vessels and I'm not sure if they'll all come together at some point and maybe we'll have a big summit but uh, I can definitely sense scenes within Michigan but uh yeah everyone calls it michigan music you're from michigan yeah. right that's what they say
0: it's been a couple years uh, i think 2007 since your last full-length album yeah it's yeah. been a hot minute it's yeah. been a long time um so can we expect anything from you soon or you yeah in the studio or what's going on yeah
3: uh i've been i just finished up a record that took me about two years to make probably more than two years um i feel like maybe it's two years in a December. Uh, I started recording it a long, long time ago, and had been working on it, uh, but for the most part, for you know, on and off for a pretty solid two years. Uh, it's a record called Salt Year, uh, which is a song that actually came out on Weight Skeleton. Um, but I was I felt really rushed in the studio when I recorded that, so I finally got a version that I'm super satisfied with, uh, and a bunch of other new songs. Great. And that'll be out in February. Okay. And what can much.
0: we expect from that album thing?
3: Oh. How is it different from the last time? I think. Uh, well, from the last f- full length, um, I think it Austria. sounds significantly better. There's a lot more fiddles and uh, roomy junk percussion and foot stomps, but uh, it sort of in a, it's it's not as chipper. I think as I think there was some really happy songs on a Wake week, and there's uh, you know it's, I'm hard up to say that there's a happy song uh on the new record, maybe a couple. Um, but yeah.
0: Very lots of sour fiddle yeah. and thuds. Okay. And uh what's the what's the latest tour been like these last couple of years after the album?
3: Well, I went on a pretty serious jawn after Corktail. I went everywhere. I went all over the world. It was great. Uh and then I sort of came back and I've been sticking pretty much regional midwest and east coast, uh, and a bit through the south. But uh, very, sh- very uh, sp- sparingly. That, my shows have been very sparse, to be honest. Uh, I've been recording every chance I got uh, and working my keister off uh, uh, to pay for it. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> um, so, th- did you say this album's gonna be? This is all out of your pocket then? Is that right? Oh yeah,
3: yeah. No, uh, I've, uh, I see a lot of people. Doing really well with Kickstarter at this point. Uh, I have to pay for record releases, and I sort of like kicking myself a little bit because it was really expensive—more expensive than I anticipated. I think the reason is that usually when I record an album, uh, I'll demo it to uh, an insane degree. So I'll make five or six versions of each song, or and repeat them over and over again until like sort of get it, what it is that I'm looking for. Suddenly, it'll come to life. It'll pop. It'll be a version that just suddenly you know I can sense a big breath of air in it um, and this time there's always there's an issue between demos that you record at home and the recording studio like the high quality recording studio there's something there's some magic in demos right when you get it to pop and you're at home there's some magic in demos I think that it's a difficult thing to recreate in the studio which is the process that I was using where I record a song and then I recreate those parts in that way in a recording studio with higher quality microphones and you know more multi-tracking and stuff like that. So this record I actually started demoing in the studio in hopes that whatever magic I snag in those demos would come out on the full length and it worked. But it took a long long time, way longer than expected. I got no
4: Oh, God.
2: You are tuned to... You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox, and that was an interview with Chris Bathgate. He is performing at Max Bar this Thursday, and that was an interview we did with him last fall. And on the phone um, is Steve Harworth. He is with um, Michigan Green Safe Products, and it was announced that Michigan Green Safe Products was announced as one of Detroit Free Press's green leaders for 2011. He is here to talk about his company. Welcome to the show, Steve Harworth. Hi,
4: Emily. How are you? Thanks for having me.
2: So talk about what is Michigan Green Safe Products.
4: We are a distributor in the city of Detroit, and we distribute all the green or eco-friendly food-disposable products.
2: And what does that mean, green or eco-friendly?
4: All of our products are made from renewable resources, things that grow back every year, Uh, unlike petroleum products. We try to make sure we're petroleum-free in all of our
2: products. And how have sales been?
4: Sales have been great. We've uh, we've been around about four years, and uh, each year we grow at an average about 40, 45 percent a year. And uh, you know, the green industry is getting stronger every day. It's it's not going away. People are
2: making changes. And who are your biggest customers? Uh, a lot of our biggest customers
4: we do are the uh, schools, hospitals, colleges, uh, a lot of restaurants. Uh, anywhere where there's a large cafeteria is our is our large target market right now.
2: And um, what are the biggest differences between, um, say, your products and, and styrofoam or plastic?
4: Um, you know, our products are, number one, they're made from renewable resources, things that grow every year. And when you dispose of our products, it's much better putting these products in a composter or a landfill, or we have the incinerator in Detroit where they're burned, and when these are burned, it's, it's a clean burn. There's no toxins given off like when you burn plastic products and styrofoam products.
2: And how long does it take to decompose as, com- as compared to styrofoam or plastic?
4: Well, we don't even know how long styrofoam and plastic hangs around, but uh, our products in a compost facility would take 60 to 90 days before they would completely com- compost.
2: And I started seeing these products last summer. I was um, out on the patio of Peanut Barrel here in East Lansing, and we had, they, was, they were serving cups, and it said that they were made out of plants. Um, yep. So is that basically what your products are? Is they're made out of, of plants?
4: Yeah, they, they call them plant starches. A lot of them are made from corn, and a lot of our carryout containers are made from sugarcane stock. Uh, you know, when they grow sugarcane, they extract the juice used after the food, and they have the stock left over. Well, they learn how to t- make a wasted resources into a paper pulp, and that's what they make a lot of our products from.
2: So most of your products are made from, you say, stocks or, or food? Uh, no, no, sugarcane and corn.
4: Okay. That's what most of our products are made from.
2: And when did this company start, and why did it start?
4: We started about four years ago, and my partner in this industry, we—he uh, started the City of Detroit's recycling program, and we were recycling at a lot of festivals, and people wanted to recycle their beer cups, and you know, to be able to recycle a lot of food products, you have to rinse them off, and that's not going to happen at a festival. So we did some research and found out these products are being made and used more on the West Coast, and we just sort of started. You know, buying some products, selling to small coffee shops, and that sort of was a domino effect. People saw these products and were aware of them, and the next thing you know, we we're, were growing like a weed.
2: So when you go to these festivals, let's say next year, and they and they and if they're using your products, not only are they made from um, stocks or, or foods, um, you can also recycle them as well?
4: Yeah, you can recycle them or compost. You know, around this area, unlike the West Coast, we don't have compost facilities. Our only compost facilities take take yard waste, leaves, grass clippings, things like that. Eventually, we're going to have uh, compost where they'll pick up your compost, pick up your recyclables, and hopefully there won't be much trash. And that's something that will happen here shortly. But the most important thing is you're buying a product or using a product that's made from renewable resources, unlike styrofoam and plastic, which is made from more or less foreign oil.
2: So why do you think it is that, that Michigan is, doesn't have compost as a, as a readily available option? What do you think it'll take to get us there?
4: Well, actually, we're starting that program in the city of Detroit. Our main target is Eastern Market, because people bring in all the produce. All these farmers bring in produce, and on the weekends, and they leave behind all the rotten stuff, the stuff they don't sell. We're going to be able to provide bins, where we'll pick that up, and then they'll take that to three different farms in Michigan where they'll actually compost it. So we're actually starting that in Detroit.
2: Now, are there other uh, companies similar to yours in Michigan or in the Midwest?
4: You know, there's a few companies. You know, a lot of your major food distributors like Cisco and Gordon's and U.S. Food, they carry a handful of products where that's all we do. We specialize just in these. I don't sell food. I sell disposables. And we probably have the largest line in the Midwest of green compostables. So we sell our products everywhere because a lot of consumers can't find these products. and They want to use them.
2: And what have been the suppliers' responses when you say that your business is from Detroit?
4: Uh, they're, they're very surprised. You know, they uh, they we're probably the largest green disposable distributor in the Midwest, and we're doing it in Detroit in bad times, and we're growing at a forty five percent rate a year. And it's amazing the reaction to people and you know business owners. They want to do the right thing. They want to be known as a green facility, and this is one way to help them get those achievements.
2: And what do you see the future in this, in this company? Where do you see it going?
4: Uh, you know, who knows? You know, um, it's getting bigger, and we are just continue to grow, and it's been great for us. But, you know, I would assume one day you're not going to be able to use styrofoam. You're not going to be able to use plastic products. That will take many years down the road before the government regulates something like that. But eventually we're going to realize we shouldn't have been using these products in the first place, and, you know, everybody's going to have to use green products eventually.
2: And how are you? How are you seeking out um, different companies or businesses um, to get them to use your products?
4: You know, to be honest, we have a few independent salespeople. We have a few full-time salespeople. But people see our products at one location, and our cups have our logo on them, and and it's a you know people see it, and then next thing you know, they're calling us. And uh, so we don't really have to go out and do a really hard sell. It takes the right business owner to buy these products. They are a little bit more expensive than styrofoam and plastic. And uh, so we haven't had any excess, as far as, uh, you know, growing and finding new, new clients.
2: So we have, it's graduation season now, and I'm sure people will be hosting parties at their house. Um, is there any way for families to be able to um, get a hold of your products in, in nearby stores, or do they have to order from you directly to get these disposable plates and, and forks and, and knives and things like that? You can find
4: a few things at a few places, but to be honest, uh, you can find us direct. And, uh, you know, like today, a lady lady called me. She's getting married this Saturday, and they want everything to be green. And she's coming to pick up a large order to, to, you know, be able to host 300 different people.
2: Well, on the phone is Steve Harworth. He is one of the co-owners of Michigan Green Safe Products, and it was announced as one of Detroit Free Press's green leaders for 2011. Steve, thanks so much for joining us tonight.
4: Thank you very much, Emily. I appreciate it. And go green. You're listening to
2: Impact Explosion.
1: I'm out of here. Th- thanks again, man. It was a good. Wait, time. you were uh you were hitting it pretty hard tonight. Are, are you good to drive? Heck yeah! I am amazing at driving. Yeah, man, you sure. I mean, I can call a cab or fine. we can uh, we can get somebody to take you home, yeah, you know? Yeah, don't worry. I'm good. Okay. Uh Hey, text me when you get back, okay? Stop right there. This is stupid. He's drunk. Friends don't let friends drink and drive. Ever.
5: A message from 88.9 The Impact.
2: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
1: Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., The Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s.
5: Impact In a world where radio is repetitive and mundane In a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs An army of new songs are called to battle And only the strongest survive Every Sunday night from 8 till 10 sit or spin
2: only on impact 89 fm
1: now back to
2: impact exposure You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. MSU was awarded by the Department of Agriculture last week as being one of the greenest research institutions in the country. Doug Gage of the MSU Bioeconomy Network tells us why MSU is a leader in sustainability. Welcome to the show, Doug Gage.
5: Hi. Thanks very much, Emily.
2: So, exactly tell us why MSU received these awards recently.
5: Well, this fits in the context of a a really significant research effort we've made at MSU over the last few years. Um, It's really a continuation of many awards we've received in this area. We've really made a commitment to develop what we call the bioeconomy. And by that, I mean the conversion of renewable biomass into useful products, whether it's fuels, uh, materials, chemicals, or energy directly. And those are, you know, our idea is to be able to replace the petroleum-based economy with a renewable, sustainable economy. Um, The three awards that we received uh, this last week uh, really fit into that very nicely. And I can tell you about them if you like. Yes, please do. Well, uh, the three awards total $2.9 million, and it's roughly less than a million for each of the awards. One is, um, I think in they the, all three sort of show different aspects of what we're doing. Uh, one of which, uh, led by uh, Professor Carolyn Malmstrom, uh, is an effort to look at the pest of dedicated energy crops, things like switchgrass and other perennial grasses, and to determine if they would pose a threat to any of our food crops like wheat. So, in other words, we, we want to make sure we're... Uh, not causing more harm than good so, so this is a project to really determine that that's not going to be a problem another project project is uh... led by professor claire via and uh... in that case uh... she's looking at actually a a waste product from biodiesel production which is called glycerol and actually developing techniques to convert that into a more useful product a chemical feedstock called succinic acid and the third project is <clears throat> from um, a forestry professor who 's looking at the effects of introducing uh, dedicated woody energy crops uh, like willow or poplar and looking at what that does to the carbon emissions from the soil and other sort of environmental consequences of, of switching into these new agricultural systems so they those three together sort of cover you know different aspects of what we do um, th- th- but as, as I said, I mean this fits in the context of a, of a a very significant effort over time and so it includes uh... a project we we share with the university of wisconsin called the great lakes bioenergy research center that's actually a hundred and forty two million dollar five-year project to develop next generation biofuels from sustainable uh... biomass so that's been a a very significant effort over four hundred scientists involved at both campuses many undergrads as well as grad students postdocs and we're one of three centers uh, nationally uh, funded by the Department of Energy to do that.
2: And you're currently in Wisconsin right now. Um, can you talk I about am. why you're I'm, there?
5: Uh, I'm in Madison for the Scientific Advisory Board meeting. Uh, we're in the fourth year of the of the grant project, and they're planning for uh, another five years of funding, if it's possible, uh, by looking at... Now, what are the what are the real challenges and there, and there have been some really remarkable achievements made over the last four years uh, and these are you know these could be transformative technologies where we really aren't going to be relying on food crops for uh, for biofuels anymore these will be based on non food uh either agricultural waste or uh, or um, byproducts of the forest industry and not even uh you know, so that these are these are really really could make a huge difference in, in our uh, both our energy and uh, you know petroleum-based economy.
2: Now I know when we've talked about ethanol before, there's there's been issues there. You know, while we kind of get away from um, oil and, and things like that, um, it does hike up food prices when you use corn-based um, materials um, for you know, engine engines and things like that. So why is it important to get away from food? And is is it more well, of a challenge to get away from food?
5: From you're, you're right. Food. And, and there are, you know, there, there are many, um, you know, sides to that argument. I think we would all agree that the ideal feedstock for uh, our energy needs is, is, won't be uh, uh, a food-based product. So today, uh, in when we look at corn, both corn-based ethanol and and soy-based biodiesel, both of those are you know have alternative uses which we which we value uh, tremendously. Um, on the other hand, we we do need to sort of a <clears throat> transition into these alternatives, and and they do provide sort of that you know the scale that we really need to. Uh, uh, develop and be able to understand how to do that effectively. And, and I think that's really a, a thing that's often not very well understood. That uh, if we are really going to make an impact on our energy uh, needs, we really have to do it at a scale that is not just, you know, an individual. Uh, the, the consumption of, of, of uh, liquid fuels in this country is tremendous. And so we really have to do this in a big way to be effective. Other if we're going to make a, a debt. In our energy needs,
2: and how and when do you see MSU's research being applied in the commercial market?
5: Well, already um, we, you know, I think these some of these really transformative te- technologies, say converting uh, uh, biomass into liquid fuels, either ethanol or some subsequent uh, fuel, those are still a few years out, um, but you know the problems are tremendous and and uh, I'll just give you an idea uh you know uh, uh, the biomass and by that I mean you know stems and stalks and and shoots of of things are really through evolutionary history have been developed not to degrade very easily you know trees and and plants need to be resistant to de- resistant to degradation and so one of the first big challenges is to develop crops that could be more readily degraded in a way that we can more easily and cost-effectively generate the material, the chemical materials, which can then be converted into energy. So we have a significant effort and it's built on MSU's expertise in plant science uh, since, you know, over 150 years in in that area. But uh, our plant scientists today are some of the best in the world, and so we've got, fortunately, some really great minds working on that problem. The next problem is actually how do you treat that biomass to convert it into something that's useful and and again there are challenges we have a leadership position there and then the next step is well what are you going to convert that those materials into and so that's uh, largely centered at the University of Wisconsin right now but we have uh, you know people looking at well is it is it going to be butanol is it going to be some other alternative fuel a uh, hydrocarbon <clears throat> um, and you know so the, so those are those are big challenges and we have to do we have to actually do the analysis in a way that we're not just doing this for science for fun we're doing it to actually be uh you know to have an impact on you know, on the United States and the United States and the world economy so we work we have sociologists involved in this project we have uh economists uh we have uh uh, educational people who are actually trying to understand what you know, what is it going to take for people to understand these technologies in a way that they can be accepted? Um, you know, I think if it's if this is viewed as just a science project and the scientists throw out some new, you know, technology, people will be suspicious, and I think rightfully so. So I think we have to bring. This is really the you know the the, the basis of sustainability. I think is, is not only is it ecologically sustainable and economically sustainable but it has to be socially acceptable as well and so we we strongly believe that and uh... have uh... made a major effort to as we develop these new tools and these new technologies to make sure that we're keeping that in mind all the time
2: and how much conversation have you had with the commercial market? I know that um, you do. A, there's a lot of um, the different um, researchers here at MSU. I know definitely collaborate a lot um, in between departments. But how much collaboration or conversation have you had with the commercial market? Like let's say with the auto industry here in Michigan.
5: Right. Well, um, we have. We I work almost daily uh, talking to companies. Uh, not always. Uh, I think the auto industry. You know they they are going to. We actually have researchers who are looking at what, it, what would it take to, you know, what are the modifications of engines that would have to be made in order to, to use these fuels, these new, new alternative fuels, efficiently. So that's a big part. That's very closely aligned with the uh, auto industry. In my area, I'm a, I work a lot with, with companies that are looking to, you know, both to become greener in one sense, but also to say, well, is there a way that they can actually do this and make money? Uh, and so there are a number of chemical companies that you know sometimes uh, you know have very, for a long time, relied on petroleum as as their their uh, you know source of the, the the chemicals that they make, and they understand that that's not going to last forever, and the prices aren't going to be what they were. And so there's a there's a really a lot of energy and a lot of discussion, in a number of different industries, uh, to see if there are in fact. Uh, some of these technologies, are they ready for prime time yet? And so we want to be players in that discussion. We want to be collaborators with companies. Uh, we want to do it in a way that's going to be, you know, broadly have broad benefit to society, not just to the company, but to, you know, really make a difference. And so, yeah, so companies, I think when we get to deployment of the technologies, that really is going to have to be a commercialization process. Uh, we have actually uh, uh, some. Uh, on campus, uh, an affiliated uh, not-for-profit company called MBI, which is uh, has a very unique role, which is to actually take some of these early-stage laboratory technologies and to scale them up to the point where a company can take a look at them and go, "Okay, well, this is this makes sense or it doesn't," because it's one thing if you do uh, a reaction or if you do a fermentation in a 10-milliliter test tube; it's quite another to do it at you know 3,000 or, or or more liters. Um, in, in, a, in a shot. So but that's a great asset for MSU, and we spend a lot of effort thinking about that transition from the laboratory to commercial application.
2: Now, is what you just described basically what your job entails as the director of the MSU Bioeconomy Network? Well,
5: my so I'll tell you what, what my role is. So I'm in the office of the vice president for research uh... and graduate studies uh... my background is in plant biology and plant biochemistry i was on the faculty at msu uh... for a number of years and then i went to industry for a while and came back as an administrator so my role is really to. we we realized that in this area of the bioeconomy we had a quite a few activities that were going on often sort of independently so for example you know we had all our basic science strength those guys were and women were doing you know, fantastic work. But we also had policy people, uh, scientists in the College of Social Science and Agriculture, who are actually looking at policies that that are going to be required to, to to introduce these technologies. And we had people doing outreach and education. And the idea was that, well, you know, we, we we would do much better if we tied all these things together in a more coherent way. And that's my job. I'm sort of the chief cat herder in a sense of moving trying to find opportunities where we can bring together different different parts of the campus together in a in a in a very coordinated way to go after larger grants applications for example or to you know find ways to work with uh, companies in, in a way that's that's productive uh, we finally um, I think one of the important things is uh, uh, that you know that that uh, when we are working like this we, there's lots of new discoveries that happen just because it's people who don't normally talk to each other start to really uh... uh... you know exchange really ways of thinking and so scientists don't not often think about economics but it's great when you get an economist and a science scientist together they both learn from that and i think that's that's just a huge advantage and i mean i should say all these students uh, all these projects involve students so that that's a that's a kind of a opportunity that just doesn't exist everywhere so i'm very proud of that that we you know almost all of our labs have uh, both undergrads and grad students uh, as well as technicians and you know more senior people but it's just it's a fantastic opportunity for our students to really get in on the ground floor of just some remarkable uh, things that will, will make the world a very different place if we're successful.
2: Now, Doug Gage, you say that sustainability has three components to it, an environmental component, an economic, and political. How has MSU been involved with those three aspects of sustainability?
5: Well, as part of this, uh, the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center, we lead the sustainability effort, and that's, that's focused on really all three aspects. So uh, some of our best ecologists, are involved in that project down at Kellogg Biological Station. We've had uh uh field sites there looking at how how these uh uh new agricultural systems are uh you know what their environmental impact is. And that builds on a, a about a almost a 20-year NSF National Science Foundation project called the Long-Term Ecological Research Program. And MSU has been a part of that for a long time, and that's actually looking at okay, what kind of looking at food crops what's the best way to grow them in a way that doesn't damage the land that doesn't release extra carbon into the atmosphere which reduces runoff and so they have very sophisticated ways of looking at that and and studying that <clears throat> when the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center came along we just morphed that uh that expertise and knowledge into looking at biofuel crops so some of these perennial grasses and looking at okay is what's the best mix we have a monoculture of one species or can we grow uh, you know more or less almost like prairie like uh, uh, uh... plants to you know both provide environmental services so we, you know pollinators and uh... <clears throat> and um, uh, <clears throat> predatory insects for for our food, protection of our food crops and there there have been some you know kind of it, it is amazing that, that that the landscape could really be transformed by some of these things and and where we grow these these uh alternatives is another important part so they're in in Michigan uh in the last century there were you know there were sort of lands that just were not productive enough for farming and so they were farmed for a few years but then were abandoned and so they're not in forest today they're not covered with concrete but they're sort of abandoned uh potential agricultural lands and many of these alternative crops can actually grow there so the ecological part that's that's huge as i said the economic component actually looking at what will it take from a farm economy standpoint to really you know convince farmers who are uh, naturally going to be skeptical of saying yeah we're going to do something you know we want you to do something entirely different they have to understand and have to really appreciate uh, you know what how they can actually make a living doing that so that so that's that economic component and, and I would say farmers are probably the most knowledgeable about the bioeconomy of any group that, that I talk to. They, they have a really clear appreciation of the land and, and what it takes to, to, and they're very interested in, in, in looking at is, is there a way to do something that would be uh, beneficial in, uh, uh, for the production of these, uh, these new alternative crops. Um, and then you know the social outreach part I think that's that 's something that we really do it 's not just talking to politicians uh you know economic development people but it's it 's actually you know looking through our extension uh, mSU extension group trying to actually uh, convince you know or un- make people understand what does this mean what 's it going to mean to me in terms of my pocketbook in terms of you know what kind of uh, you know what 's it going to do to the land I love where I like to hunt where I like to fish and and those things. So so it really is this whole mix of, you know, that's the real the the, the real definition of sustainability. It's it's not just one, it has to be all three of those things together.
2: And where do you envision the bioeconomy 2 decades from now?
5: Well, I'm an optimist. Um I'm hopeful that that we will be able to do to introduce some of these things. It's not going to happen overnight. Um I think you know the price of oil is is has been really the determining factor in in the past uh... At whether whether there is a significant interest in in this area or not and it comes and goes with the price of oil so i i don't think the price of oil is going to be <clears throat> declining uh... back to nineteen eighties levels again i think we're we're sort of going to be at a new plateau and maybe even worse so you know i think this is something that we just have to and because it 's such a long term uh, long term process, we really have to be uh, working on these problems today so that we can you know be ready um, to to introduce them and it will happen i think companies are as I said companies are interested there are there are a number of you know of uh, uh, alternative um, maybe chemicals might be the first Place that that these technologies are introduced uh, because they're, they're higher value per per volume or per per uh, weight or higher. You know, so the companies that can make more money on uh, a renewable chemical uh, from probably a, a bulk fuel. So so that may be where we first see these introductions. There's already uh, biodegradable plastics derived from uh, from biomass uh, on the market today. Uh, you know, the uh, sunchip bag the uh, polylactic acid that's actually a, a multi a billion pound a year industry right now, and I think things like that will come along with with more experience with more uh, interest by these uh, companies that are want to do you know want to make money and they're going to do it in a in a way that is uh going to be beneficial to society.
2: Well, on the phone is Doug Gage. He's the director of the MSU Bioeconomy Network, and he was on the phone to talk about the various awards MSU received in the past week in regards to our efforts for sustainability and research. Doug Gage, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
5: My pleasure, Emily. Thanks again. You're listening to
2: Impact Exposure.
1: Now back to
2: Impact Exposure. Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. This week's Michigan Storytelling segment features Dr. Tony Yoon. He's an MSU graduate who is now a plastic surgeon, and he released his book, In Stitches, this week. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Emily. So talk about your book, In Stitches.
1: Well, this is a book that I started about six years ago, and I went to medical school here at Michigan State, the College of Human Medicine, and I figured that there is no real book out there that, that describes the process of becoming a doctor, going through medical school, in a humorous way. And so that's what I wrote a book. So this book really is about my four years here at Michigan State, becoming a doctor going through medical school.
2: And why did you decide to write this book?
1: Well, really, it seems as if the majority of books about becoming a doctor and about medicine are very serious. They're serious, they're grim, they're even somewhat detached. So I really felt after I finished all my training, that that, and I had time because I wasn't all that busy at the time starting a practice, that there was a space for a book like this, a book that's going to make you laugh. It'll make you, unfortunately, cry at times. But a book that really tells the, the truth, the hidden truth of what it's really like to go through medical school.
2: So you had time to do this after graduate Yeah,
1: so I I finished my plastic surgery residency through Michigan State, and I spent a year out in Beverly Hills, California, where I was lucky enough to be involved with Dr. 90210, uh, the television show. And then I moved back, actually, to Michigan, to Metro Detroit, Uh, to start my own practice. And because I was new, I had no patients, I had no money, so I really couldn't go out anywhere. (laughs) But I had this dream to write this book about the true story uh, of becoming a doctor, and it just happened to be that I went to Michigan State.
2: Well, without further ado, would you be willing to read an excerpt for us?
1: Sure. Well, this is an excerpt from the prologue. It's called The Face in the Ceiling from my book in Stitches. What a pair, double Ds, poking up at me like Twin Peaks. Pam Anderson, eat your heart out. Too bad they're attached to a 14-year-old boy. I use a black marker out of my lab coat pocket and start drawing on my first surgery patient of the day, Phil, an overweight African-American boy. Phil has severe gynecomastia. In layperson's language, ginormous man boobs. Poor Phil, bad enough being 14, awkward, and a non-athlete in a tough urban Detroit school. But now he has to deal with breasts? Two weeks ago. I sit in my office with Phil and Mrs. Greer, his grandmother. Phil lives with his grandma, who raised him since he was 10, when his mom died. He's never known his dad. Mrs. Greer sits on a chair in front of my desk, her hands folded in her lap. She's a large woman, nervous, well-dressed in a light blue dress and matching shawl. Phil, wearing what looks like a toga, sits on a chair next to her. He stares at the floor. It happened fast, Mrs. Greer says. He shot up. His voice got deeper. He started to shave. She speaks in a low rumble. She looks at her grandson, tries to catch his eye. He can't see her. He keeps his head down, eyes boring into the floor. Then he became quiet, withdrawn. He would spend more and more time in his room alone, listening to music. He would walk around all day wearing his headphones. Seemed like he was trying to shut out the world. Mrs. Greer slowly shakes her head. Phil's a good student, but his grades have gone downhill. He doesn't want to go to school. Says he's sick. I tried to talk to him, tried to find out what was wrong. He would just say, leave me alone, Nana. That's all he would say. Phil clears his throat. He keeps looking at the floor. Mrs. Greer shifts in her chair. One day I accidentally walked in on him when he was drying off after a shower. That's when I saw, you know, them. Phil flinches. Mrs. Greer reaches over and touches his arm. After a moment, he swallows and says in a near whimper, can you help me? yes i say i say this one word with such confidence that phil lifts his head and finds my eyes he blinks through tears please he says the night before phil's procedure i can't sleep i lean over and squint at the clock on the nightstand Three thirteen a.m i twist my head and look at my wife deep asleep her back arched slightly her breath humming like a tiny engine i exhale and study the ceiling my mind sifts through my days in medical school and in a kind of hallucinogenic blaze, I conjure up every triumph, every flub, every angst-filled moment. I remember each pulse-pounding second of the first two years of non-stop studying and test-taking, interrupted by intermittent bouts of off-the-hook partying. I see myself in years three and four, wearing my short white coat, wandering through hospital corridors trying to overcome my fear that someone, an administrator or nurse, or God forbid a patient, would confuse me for a doctor and ask for medical attention. I teetered a hair's width away from those moments that might mean life and death, facing the deepest truth in the pit of my stomach, that I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And neither did any of my medical school classmates, those doctors in training who stumbled around me. But things changed. Thanks to my small circle of close friends, my focus, work ethic, and drive to succeed, I slowly grew up. I entered medical school, a shy, skinny, awkward nerd with no confidence, no game, and no clue. I came out four years later a man. A smile creeps across my face. My eyelids quiver. I catch a last glimpse of the face of my younger self in the ceiling as it shimmies and pulls away. Sleep comes at last. Phil's surgery goes well. 90 minutes, no complications. I lop off his breasts with a scalpel, slice off the nipples, and suture them back onto his now flat chest. I nod at his new aurelis. They have decreased in diameter from the size of pie plates to quarters. I leave Phil stitched up and covered with gauze, a normal-looking high school freshman. Good news, Phil. You will not break new ground to become the first male waiter at Hooters.
2: <laughs> well for the Michigan storytelling segment it features this week we're featuring Dr. Tony Yoon he is an MSU graduate who is now a plastic surgeon and he released his book In Stitches this week. So I'm curious why did you decide to become a plastic surgeon?
1: Well, we talk, I actually wrote a lot about this in my book, and there was one seminal moment that really made it for me. I mean, I really struggled through medical school of what, what I was going to be. Uh, when I was born, my dad decided I was going to be a doctor, and that was just what was expected of me. I mean, I was in, uh, a second generation Asian American. My parents uh, grew up in Korea, and then they immigrated here, and basically all they knew was that their kids were going to be doctors because that was success to them. So I knew I was going to be a doctor, but I just didn't know what, which one. And what finally really hit it to me was I had this little baby, this little baby that was mauled by a raccoon. And a plastic surgeon came in and showed me how the surgeon, he was going to reconstruct this little baby's face. And I was at that point completely in love with the specialty of plastic surgery. You know, I've always been interested in artistry, and this really is the only field of medicine where I can practice both artistry and medicine at the same time.
2: And you've, you've had plastic surgery yourself, is that correct?
1: Exactly. And this is one of the things that, that I'm that I'm proud of that I was able to describe in this book in stitches is because, you know, there's a lot of doctors out there who they like being on a pedestal. You know, they like people to look up to them and say, wow, you know, this is a doctor and, and he's above and beyond everybody else. But the fact is, is at one point I was a shy, skinny nerd with big glasses and a huge jaw. And that's part of this book. It's, it's how do you get somebody from starting out that position? And then several years later, you walk into a room and the nurses and the patients say, Oh, thank God you're here.
2: So I, I'm curious, my roommate freshman year came from an affluent suburb of Detroit, and she said it was pretty normal for her peers to get nose job or boob jobs for graduation from high school. So I'm curious, how do you deal with um, parents like this when they come in saying that, oh, we're going to pay for our daughter to get a nose job or a boob job, you know, and she's 18 years old? And what do you give what advice do you give to those families?
1: Honestly, what happens is I don't even see them from the beginning. My First of all, my wife, she graduated Michigan State Medical School, too. I I met her, and and I wrote a lot about that in in, in the stitches. But my receptionist, actually, from the beginning, if anybody calls and it's a parent, if anybody's less than 18, I just won't see them. So there are people who do these surgeries, but it's not my thing. You know, I don't. I don't think it's right. Um, you can always wait for plastic surgery. And so anybody who's under eighteen, I don't do elective cosmetic surgery like breast augmentations and liposuction and stuff. You know, honestly, I, instead of doing that, I'd rather go home and, and hang out with my kids. You know, or go shoot hoops.
2: Yeah. Now your your blog is called celebcosmetic dot com, and you've been described as a celebrity cosmetic surgeon. What does that mean?
1: Uh, what it is, is I've, I've been very fortunate, and I have this blog, and the blog gets anywhere from twelve to 20,000 views a day. And one day I got a call from a producer at the Rachel Ray Show, and they said, Hey, you've got some interesting stuff. Let's bring you on in and let's have you do a segment. And now it's been maybe 15 segments later so it's been a couple of seasons now and i'm on it typically six seven times each season and for me it's just a lot of fun it's a way for me to get out of town to take part in kind of hollywood and that type of thing um... but i i'm also grounded because i am a midwesterner you know i grew up in greenville michigan Um and and i'm still kinda of that that same kid that that i described to you a little bit ago
2: and what are some of the things that, I know you've talked about this on Rachel Ray, what are some of the things that doctors do not want patients to know?
1: Well, there are a lot of secrets that I reveal in, in, in Stitches, and these are, this is a book that uh, some doctors are gonna read, and they're not gonna be happy with me. And this really is, to, to an, a large extent, a tell-all about what it's really like to become a doctor and go through medical school. Uh, so some secrets are the fact that we practice on patients. Medical students, we need to learn how to suture, so while people are asleep, we practice suturing on you. Um, there's been a lot also of talk about resident work hours and, and medical students and, and working 36 hours straight. You know, one of the things that a lot of doctors won't admit, but medical students and residents sometimes fall asleep when they're operating. God forbid you're <laughs> you're your attending surgeon, you know, I've never fallen asleep when I'm in charge. But when I had 36 hours when I was awake and I was a medical student and I had to hold retractors for four hours straight, there has been the occasional head bob back in the day. So there are a lot of these kind of funny stories that a lot of doctors don't want you to know that I'm revealing in, in in stitches. And the great thing like I said is is I feel proud to represent, you know, represent Michigan state and where I came from.
2: And and what was that like to write a book um as a plastic surgeon and are you planning on writing maybe perhaps another one in the future?
1: I'm hoping to. Uh for me, this has just been an amazing experience because this book started six years ago, and I've really put my heart and soul into it, and I've been so happy with the response we've received. I haven't read a negative review yet, and the, the worst I've read is I love this book, I love this book, but maybe I don't like how we joked around about family practice docs or something like that, but it's all been positive. I haven't read a single review where somebody said, I, I put this book down for a few days. It seems like almost everybody that reads it, you, you're done in two to three days because you can't put it down, and that's an amazing feeling
2: and i'm curious how much of msu appears um in this book
1: msu is a setting for probably at least two-thirds of this book so i go through maybe the first one-third to one-fourth of the book is growing up in in my small town in greenville michigan and the last two-thirds is four years at michigan state
2: now i know i didn't prepare you for this but would you be willing to read another a short segment maybe four or five minutes that 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 deals with um a segment of of msu life
1: of msu life Oh you're you're getting me now here there's a lot of different areas in this um oh let me find something here
2: And again, for our listeners, while he's looking for a page, I'm talking with uh, Dr. Tony Yoon. He is an MSU graduate who is now a plastic surgeon, and he released his book In Stitches this week. And the um, book is a laugh-out-loud memoir that uh, chronicles his four years of medical school uh, here at MSU. And for more information, you can go to celebcosmeticsurgery.com. His book is also available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble.
1: And I am actually doing a book signing at the Alchemist schuler Books in uh, a week and a half, Thursday. Uh, May 5th 7 p.m. Excellent. Okay well this actually goes over um, this is a part where I just met my my newest patient um, and the first patient in medical school so I just started my third year medical school so for people who don't know um, t- first two years of medical school are basically bookwork. you know we're we're here at Michigan State taking classes and the next two years we go actually into the hospital so this is me going in and seeing my first patient. I open the door to Mrs. Adele Zingerman, 78, my first live patient ever. She sits across the room in a chair, legs folded at purple ankles. Mrs. Zingerman, I shout, hello. Okay, a little less volume. Let's start with that. I cross the room in two steps. I I arrive and hover over Mrs. Zingerman. I sing softly, good morning, good morning. What the heck am I doing, singing in the rain? I ease onto the edge of the bed, fumble in my pocket for a pen and a three-by-five. I grin grin at Mrs. Ingerman. I try to remember my class and clinical skills. Step one, put her at ease. Ask an open-ended question. Hello, Mrs. Ingerman. She coughs, grimaces, grins back. So what brings you here today? Textbook, Dr. Talk 101, how I've been trained at Michigan State. All that time I put in with dead bodies and live actors is finally kicking in. I flash a broad smile, click the pen, poised to write. Mrs. Zingerman again grins, grimaces, says nothing. I speak again, slower and louder. What brings you here today, Mrs. Zingerman? Nothing. I scratch my head with the pen. Mrs. Zingerman laughs. What the heck? Might as well keep scratching. She got a kick out of it. Scratch, scratch, scratch. I make a silly yet kind face. She stares through me, creases her mouth into a frown. Maybe she doesn't speak English. What kind of problem are you having today? Can you tell me? Mrs. Ingerman opens her mouth. A sound trickles out. Half a grunt, half a croak. Not a sound I've heard before. She pushes herself to her feet, stands unsteadily. I stand too, extend my arms, ready to guide her. She takes a step, weaves. Do you, are you, where are you going? She lurches forward, takes two more shaky steps. Do you need to use a bathroom? She freezes, her eyes bulge. She gasps, gurgles, takes another step and falls to the floor. She lies there, motionless and soundless. Mrs. Ingerman. She doesn't move. She doesn't grin, gurgle, or gasp. Are you okay? Wait a minute, is she... No, she can't be! Mrs. Ingerman. hello! Are you kidding me? I drop down, feel for a pulse. No pulse, no heartbeat, no breath, no sign of life. I'm new at this doctor stuff. I mean, I'm still a medical student, but I'm pretty sure this means that Mrs. Ingerman is dead. I have killed my first patient! This can't be good. It may be some sort of record, but I know it can't be good. Will I get marked down for this? I crouch over Mrs. Ingerman, thinking, What do I do? And then Nancy's tank like frame fills a doorway, and I hear, Yoon, what the heck is taking you? Oh my God! Time stops, fractured words dance across the room. "'saddle pulmonary embolus, screams of, "'Code, code!' "'then whirring of machinery, crashing of footsteps, "'a tide of white-coated bodies surging in, "'and one man, Dr. Ed Moncrief, exuding a steady cool, "'pushes through the crowd to take over. "'He wears a long white coat, "'but he may as well have on a leather jacket. "'He is that cool. "'I stand to the side and watch in some state of awe, "'still stunned but no longer afraid.' Unlike Nancy, who's a terrorist, and me, who's a rookie, Dr. Moncrief is a doctor, and everyone in the room knows it, defers to him, and gets the heck out of his way. He is the star in the room, and the light shines only on him as he works over poor, dead Mrs. Zingerman, checking for her non-existent breath and pulse, jolting her non-beating heart with paddles, pounding her lifeless chest. We stand in the shadows, helpless observers, his audience in the dark. Finally, after five minutes of literally literally trying to revive the dead, Dr. Moncrief calls it a day. No cure here, sung in a Glee Club baritone.
2: Oh, my gosh. That really happened?
1: It did. My first patient
2: oh my died gosh. right in front of me. Oh, my gosh. That is crazy.
1: So that's kind of these the, the secrets, you know, about uh, becoming a doctor that most of us don't want to admit. And that's what I put in the book in stitches is things that really your your doctor doesn't necessarily want you to know.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. So you're going on a book tour. As you said, you'll be at Shuler's, um May 5th at 7 p.m.
1: Yep, the Oklahoma Schuler books, May 5th, 7 p.m.
2: And where else are you touring around?
1: Um, I'm doing a uh, uh, signing at grand rapids my hometown of greenville and one in rochester hills near where i live now
2: excellent well again this week's michigan storytelling segment features dr tony yoon he is an msu graduate who is now a plastic surgeon and he released his book in stitches this week uh you can read his blog celebcosmeticsurgery.com and his book is available on amazon and barnes and noble thank you so much for joining us tonight
1: thanks emily it was my pleasure
2: Thanks for listening to this evening's exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.
0: An exclusive podcast from Impact 89. 89-